would say, welcome to Dad Saves America. Thank Thanks you for, for having us. us. <laughs> so, okay, so Christy, you and I have known each other a long time, and Ben, we've only just started to get to know each other. But you have a new film, and I think the subject of this movie is really important right now because 2023 is like the brain breaker year for me about division, about where we are as a country, and we're heading into the worst, which is the 2024 election yeah. year. This is gonna be a terrible year. So tell me about the movie and why do you think, because it's an optimistic film, why do you mm -hmm. think we can recover from how divided we are? So yeah. Christy, start with you. Well, so it's, it's interesting because I was feeling exactly the way that you just described, right? I was feeling, I was watching the political division, watching the culture wars, watching how the media was handling this, how then people were taking that and saying, oh gosh, I can't, I can't talk to, yeah. I can't talk to the people in my community about the things I care about the most. And I was like, this is, I mean, this is awful. If this is the world we're living in, what are we leaving for our children, right? Like that's, cause that's ultimately, that's what drives me. That's what, that's what I was thinking about. And then I read a book, um, by uh, a guy named Tony Woodleaf, mm -hmm. and the book is called I Citizen. And Tony in this book talks about how the politicians and the social media and traditional media are basically in cahoots. The more that they make us believe that we are toxically against one another and tribal and they put, we put labels on each other and we don't believe we can talk to our neighbors, that actually that drives power to Washington, D.C. And it takes away our power and our agency of like what's actually going on in our local communities. And so I read this book and I was like, huh, if that's true, we should be able to go around the country and have really crazy conversations about like the most incredibly divisive things. We should be able to talk about guns and abortion and policing and immigration and elections, are they fair or not? And, and people should be able to do this, right? And not start to punch each other in the face. And not actually get into fist fights. <laughs> yeah. right? And so I was like, okay, yeah. so I'm a filmmaker. Let's try this out. And so we did it. And what we found was like, it was heartwarming. People, people would come into these conversations and they'd be like, they'd be so nervous. They'd be, you could yeah. just see where they were like, okay, what's going on here? You know, is they would look at Ben with like major suspicion. <laughs> you know, <laughs> who is this guy? What's going on? And then they would get in these conversations and afterwards you couldn't shut them up because they just wanted to keep talking. They wanted to be in community, even though they realized they weren't with people that agreed with them, but the feeling of being in community and feeling like they could then have these conversations was actually empowering to them. And so that's what I want is for like, the majority of us who are not toxically polarized, who aren't gonna get in fist fights, I want us to believe that we can do this in our own local communities. So how d does Ben come into the picture? You know, you read Tony's book. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Ben, I wanna hear about, you know, your work and, and your background. But how, so, so maybe that like, how do you guys get connected? And then yeah. Ben, you know, I well, wanna hear about Ben's like, Ben, Ben like runs a center for doing this basically <laughs> at the, at, at George Mason, at the Mercatus Center at George Mason. So Ben, you should. Yeah, you should. right. Yeah. So, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, I run a program called Pluralism and Civil Exchange at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And, you know, Mercatus, you know, we, we love to talk about markets, learn about markets, understand how markets foster innovation. 
but we started to realize that um, the marketplace of ideas is, is really critical and that at some point it's even more important than so the, the market for goods and services, right? Because yeah. ideas generate innovation and things like that. But realizing that the environment within which um, the marketplace of ideas uh, functions has been reoriented towards conflict and discord means that it's going to be really hard for any place that cares about ideas to really um, do work, effective work, in engaging with people and discussing and, and introducing new ideas and so on and so forth. And so when we launched the program on pluralism and civil exchange, it was really to help to kind of till the soil, if you will. And one of the things I do under the program is to bring students from across the country together to have conversations on difficult topics. And what we started to realize is that these students come in with some, you know, trepidation of having conversations, especially when yeah. they are thinking of these things, like these are difficult topics and so on. But when they're done, they, they don't want to leave. They, they want to continue the conversations. Uh, they, they start to uh, foster relationships, exchange emails and exchange uh, texts. And I heard that they were starting to meet one another outside of the Pluralist Lab um, when they would, you know, get to the other city or whatever, they would, they would try to get together. And, and it made me realize that maybe there's something going on here. Maybe there's a bit of a perception gap uh, taking place in terms of the way we think about division and polarization versus how Americans want to engage one another. This is, so, you know, Christy, you and I met, you were a producer for John Stossel for a long time. Mm -hmm. And... We come at things in slightly different ways, I think almost like gut, as a gut. And, and so I've always turned to you as someone who is less inclined to be like, we're all screwed. <laughs> Whereas I'm a little more like, oh God, I think we're all screwed. Yeah. And um, <laughs> like, That's true. I, I try to practice being a rational optimist, mm -hmm. but I get drawn into this this yeah. negativity, I can yeah. feel it. Yeah. And th the past couple months, has felt, it's felt really intense here. Yeah. Which is why I wanted to have this conversation, why I think like your movie's coming at like such an important yeah. time. That perception gap, Yeah. lay that out like for, for me and for viewers, because I think that's such a big challenge. We are all on screens all the time, and, when, and the screens are telling us that we are on, the, are on the verge of like a civil war. And that's actually yeah. in the movie that yeah. this, this question is raised, like, are we heading towards a civil war? Yeah. And there's some people on both sides of the political spectrum or whatever, there's more than two, but who are like, oh yeah, no, we're heading towards national divorce. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then there's this other perspective. So unpack that for me and what you've discovered in the movie and in your work, Ben. Well, Ben, start with yeah. you. Yeah, but I think Oftentimes, when people talk about polarization, there are two kinds of polarization that they're talking about. There is political polarization. And I think America has always been divided, like we, we disagree, we challenge each other, we contest ideas. And that's always been the case. And so that's sort of the ideological distance between two parties, right? Mm -hmm. In some ways, when you look at a lot of surveys, Americans have actually come a little bit closer really? on policy ideas uh, than one might think. But then you look at the other kind of polarization, um, which scholars call affective polarization or toxic polarization, which is that it's no longer that, you know, you dis I disagree with you, I think your views are wrong. 
but it's more, well, I disagree with you. I think your views are a threat to my existence. I see you now as an enemy. And so you're evil, you're evil, right? That kind of affective polarization we're seeing emerge uh, in certain corners. Um, but still, uh, that is still not a uh, majority of Americans. Mm -hmm. You're talking about people who are most involved in politics. They're tracking the news 24-7. They're following these things on social media 24-7. And it's about 20% of the population. But uh, their views are the ones that are projected on social media and cable news and all these places. So they, they give us the sense of, oh my gosh, there's something really, really um, scary happening. Now, that's not yeah. to say that you know, this kind of affective polarization is trivial. I think it's still you know, palpable. It's, it's, a, it's a serious challenge because what we're seeing is that across you know, Western democracies, the United States has seen the steepest decline in social trust. And I think a lot of the uh, decline in trust stems from the way that we see each other um, in terms of uh, affective polarization. You've worked in the news mm -hmm. for your whole career, basically, mm -hmm. right? You know, starting at 2020, mm -hmm. um, not 2020, the year 2020, the show. Um, Close, though, to 2020. <laughs> the news, that's true. The news uh, seems to have a modus operandi that best described as if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah, totally. So talk to me about that. Talk to me about that culture of news, because if 20% of people are newsies, I'm in that camp. Yeah. Frankly, if you're watching the show, you're probably in that camp. Yeah. What's going on there? What's the mechanism? What's the culture inside of a newsroom? Yeah. I mean, like clicks, clicks are what dominate, right? In terms of you're trying to get clicks for this show. You know, everybody's trying to get more clicks. Um, but eyeballs engagement. Eyeballs engagement and outrage sells, right? But we have to think about how we are going to take the power back in that in, in those situations. You know what I mean? Because it's like if we are just unconsciously you know consuming the the media that's put in ahead of us and and we're clicking on all those things that are the most salacious the more the more at the you know if there's like a bell curve right yeah. and and you know 10% of what is actually reality in America is at either end those are the things that are going to that are going to generate more attention and we just ha you have to recognize that the more you click on that stuff the more you're going to feel like that's actually the reality that you see all around you that's the reality of your neighbor, when in fact, there might actually be a different, much more nuanced reality. I mean, most Americans aren't, don't, aren't like, I'm a Republican, so I believe all of these things. I'm a Democrat, I believe all of these things. The labels don't actually drive how most of us live our lives. Most of us are, we live in this area of nuance. We're like, well, I kind of skew this way, but on this issue, I think we need to think about this. That's, that's how most of us actually are. But if we are only clicking and we're only getting our perception of who the other person is from the news media, we are actually ceding our own power and we're buying into their narrative. And they, they, us, we get more money, power, all those things, the more that we just cede, you know, oh yeah, we click, click here, 
click here. And so my my hope for the film actually is that people, it's not that I think people are gonna stop clicking on salacious stories, you know, that's not my goal. Um, my goal is that we have an awareness about it and that we have some sort of a, an awareness around who our fellow citizens are and that they're, they're probably much more nuanced than the news stories are leading us to believe. The, uh Let's dig into some of the particulars of the film. So the basic structure mm -hmm. is that you travel to a, a series of cities mm -hmm. and, and conduct these basically focus groups, mm -hmm. yeah. which when I heard it, because you told me about this project, <laughs> I've known about this project from the beginning, I'm like, a movie about focus groups. This is gonna be... <laughs> be really boring. <laughs> I've sat in focus groups. I've many, many, many from my years in advertising. Okay. You've thrown down the creative gauntlet on this one. But the movie's actually quite compelling. Yeah. Um, tell me about the cities you picked and why. So why, so so where did you go and why did you go where you went? Yeah, um, we went to Atlanta, Georgia, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and, and uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And those are all states and cities that are you know, they have real political division in their DNA, essentially. You know, there is either, there's there's all the divisions, right? The political division, clearly, right and left, but there's also racial division, different issues around class, different issues around, you know, immigration, and, and all those issues yeah. kind of come up in those cities. I mean, did yeah. you have any other thoughts, yeah. too, about, like... You were involved in those conversations. Right, right. Where were we going to go? Yeah, and, and we've seen certain things happen in, in those areas too, <clears throat> uh, politically in particular, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, where we've seen, uh, you know, just the recent election, the gubernatorial election mm -hmm. that became very, very tense. Yeah. Uh, you know, same in, in places like, like Georgia, yeah. right? And so it was an indication that, you know, these are places that I've seen some, some very tense moments. And so we, we, our conjecture was that we will see these types of tensions emerge uh, mm -hmm. in these conversations with these focus groups. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was really interesting. We didn't want to go somewhere where they would be like, oh, well, you picked an easy mm -hmm. one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the know? Midwest with yeah. a bunch of uh, and that was why, like, Scandinavian we, immigrants. Yeah, no, <laughs> we, like, we tried to go places where it would be where we could authentically tell our audience that like, we're, we're not shying from the fight here. Yeah. Like, it's real. So, um, what was the most contentious question that you asked of these people, you know, out of the gate? Like, how did you get, how does, how does it get started? What, what? We actually, so we start with an easy question, mm -hmm. but we frame it as though it's contentious, right? So we ask, which one of these has the largest impact on human happiness or human flourishing? Cats? dogs or neither right <laughs> and they're like oh okay this this may not be as challenging as you know we might think um, it's a trap it's, yeah <laughs> right and so and the reason we do this right it's sort of a fancy term called triadic illumination but it, it's really perspective taking reflective listening uh and that's sort of the process for conversations that that we we use but what we do is that if you pick that you are a dog person um you know, we'll ask the person who's a cat person to say, why do you think John um, might pick dogs as the thing that he thinks hmm. has the most impact on human flourishing? And so you have to kind of get in the mind of somebody else and you have to be a bit more charitable to them, try to interpret the world the way that they might interpret the world if they are a dog lover. And so they start to list these things um, about how, you know, dogs um, are 
you know, you, you can go on walks with them. They are welcoming when you get home and all these exciting things. And I'll ask, you know, Christy, so how do you think, um, oh, I'll ask, sorry, you, John, how do you think Christy did? And you say, well, okay, she got 90%, right? right? And so, and so well, what else would you add, right? And you add a couple of things. And we do the same thing on the other side, right? Why do you think Christy would pick cats? And then she kind of goes through the process and say, hey, how do you think John did? And, you know, I say, well, he did maybe 50%. But the other thing that he didn't mention is that I, you know, I actually kind of grew up with, with cats. And I, had, you know, I, I was lonely when I was young. But, you know, having that cat was just really a great companion to me and so on and so forth. And so we do that. And we, we try to figure out what we've learned about each other through that process. And that's interesting because when someone is next to you within close proximity, um, you, you're, you can get all the social cues, you understand mm -hmm. a bit of their, their emotions and so on, and you're being a lot more respectful, right? That's a key part of what we do to, to, ref, to um, highlight respect as an important condition for these conversations. Um, How much priming for the group is there about the rules of engagement when they're coming in to have this conversation? Was there any? No, mm -hmm. no. Not like okay, you can you're going to participate, but don't be an asshole. Like <laughs> no, no, we didn't. No, we we absolutely didn't say that actually. Because yeah. interesting. Um, and we were legitimately nervous. Can I just say also we <laughs> didn't right. we like did not know what we were going to. Yeah. This was a true experiment. Like we we didn't know what we were going to get. Like mm -hmm. the first one we did in Atlanta, we actually they were having. Um, they were having protests at the time against the police there. There were firebombs and like riots happening in the street in the weekend. And the 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 company that ran the focus group, we actually had like this emergency call because they were like, should we cancel? And I'm like, no, like we have all the people coming. Everything is set. We're going to, should we get security? I'm like, no, we're going to be, it's going to be fine, I think. You know. I'm the director, right? I'm trying to be really yeah. calm. Yeah, right. like, cool. And inside I'm thinking, oh, geez, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, you know, we just leaned in and then it was completely yeah. fine. It was yeah. like. I mean, we do tell them that, you know, you are here representing a set of views that. Um, yeah, we ask them important. to be true to their yeah. views. Yeah. So be, be true. Um, uh, don't, don't mask your views. Yeah. Um, be, be as honest as possible because what you have to say is, is important, yes. right? I wanna um, linger on this little sort of softball exercise that you did, because it seems like there's a lesson in there for how we, you know, heading into the holidays, <laughs> gonna have some interesting conversations. Right. So two questions, one, this is, it's, you know, you sort of alluded to that it's kind of like a tactic that's um, tested. Right. So tell me about that. And tell me about like how did you know that okay this is this works this this softens the ground and then like what's your advice for people that comes out of that for like actually <laughs> being right. in mixed company and something yeah. interesting comes up or you want to sort of like yeah. break the ice and have it and be able to have a a m more full conversation but not start with the yeah. so who are you going to vote for in twenty twenty four or whatever <laughs> right I mean I think it's just based on experience and maybe a little bit of common sense too, because um, people just, they don't look upon it charitably if you just start up with very, very intense things. What do you think about guns, you know, that kind of thing. We get that, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's it, cats and dogs, it's right direction, wrong direction, right? That's mm -hmm. the next question we move on to. 
Um, in the, for the country? Yes, yeah. yes. Do you think the country's going the right direction or the wrong direction, right? Why might you think that it's the wrong direction? Why might you think it's the right direction? Yada, yada, yada. And then we get into the, the immigration you know, conversation or the conversation around guns. Um, but by the time we get there, um, you know a little bit about each other. Um, you, um, you, you kind of care about them a little bit, right? Uh, you've heard some stories. You've heard some stories. Um, and I think that's what we do naturally. Like in the airport, you meet someone and you're having a conversation with someone in the airport. Uh, it's like, hey, so where, where are you off to? You know, you know, yeah, for holidays or just visit family. Then you start talking about family and your kids and things like that. And then, you know, something interesting comes up about, you know, you're watching something on TV, you know, shooting or what have you. There's yeah. something about the climate crisis or something like that. You start talking about that. And by that point, they're not some random abstraction, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They are human, and so you have to take their feelings into consideration. I think if we're talking to our family members, we have a lot more leeway because these yeah. th and over the holidays, these things don't have to happen over like 90 minutes or two hours or so. You have a couple of days, right, to, mm -hmm. to engage and to talk. And so you don't have to unpack all of these things at one moment, and sometimes you don't have to um, uh, kind of deal with every situation that is of interest to you politically, right? Because we, let's I think not we have can, the abortion conversation exactly. over Christmas Day. <laughs> let's just not do that. Let's just agree. Yes. It's not going to end great. Let's put a pin in that. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and the reason we get to that sort of the 20% number is that most Americans, uh, so if you, if you divide it up, you know, based on research, there's a, a certain percentage that just don't care about uh, politics at all, right? There's a certain percentage that cares, but they're not following everything every single day, right? A major issue might pop up and they might offer an opinion, and so they're tracking things. And then there are people who are steeped in every single day, and they're the most polarized. Mm. And it turns out that the people who are most polarized tend to overestimate how extreme the other mm. side is. People who are not, who kind of track in you know news every, from time to time they they estimate correctly you know how their sort of political opponents think about issues um and i think it's really interesting um because the more you are focused on politics i think the less sort of charitable you are to folks on the other side because you assume that they are extreme mm -hmm. or what have you um so i think you you, you ease into it you don't you don't um, go full-blown Hardcore issues. Um, that's why we did what we did. There's a character in the movie that's kind of my favorite character, and uh, <laughs> I don't know who he's going to say. And <laughs> it's because it's like we live in this time, and I want to get into these issues in this conversation about identity politics and race mm. um, and sexual orientation. And okay, he, now I know who and he's about. <laughs> he's a a gay black individual mm -hmm. who. Um, is maybe the most like vocally conservative and like skeptical of all the things you would probably stereotypically expect him to be in favor of. Like mm -hmm. he actually says like, no, I think there's a gay agenda. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> he's like a fairly flamboyant gay man. He's like, no, there's a gay agenda and it's all, it's all horrible. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to brainwash the kids and I don't like it. And you're watching this like, and, and it's like, how did you find this person? This is this is a, first of all, it's amazing television. <laughs> Thank you. But but um, 
but he's actually like in this debate with this older like white school teacher sort of liberal democrat school teacher so everything about that is is interesting and weird mm-hmm. and um and talk about that what did like how did you find him like you kind of lean into his story and the connection they have mm-hmm. like what did you learn about mm-hmm. them in the process of seeing this play out i mean so we so you're talking about Dre Sember and Carol right yep. and so so just to back up, first of all, we found all of the characters through like a focus group, like search company. And we basically were like, okay, we want to talk about this issue. We want to talk about, and that conversation actually came out of, we were talking about the role of parents in education, yeah. you know, um, and we didn't bring up the transgender issue. They they brought it up, the, the folks in our focus group. Mm-hmm. We didn't know it was going to go there actually, because you can take the idea of parental choice and education and parental involvement and take it in a lot of different directions. Sure. So anyway, so that that's what happened during the focus group. Um, Dre made a lot of really strong remarks about his perspective. Um, yeah. Carol and JJ also, there was another school teacher in in that particular focus group, actually. It was, it was interesting. Um, and we had picked the people in that group because they felt strongly on both sides of that issue. I mean, I didn't know they were going to go where they went, though. I mean, that was just kind of serendipitous. They had this conversation. Ben was there. Ben, like, navigated it beautifully with our with our other facilitator, D. Alsop. And, like, they, they had a very respectful conversation in a time when you were seeing, actually, when this was shot, when, the, when we were filming this, I shouldn't say shot. <laughs> when we were filming this, there were there were massive protests happening in Florida over the trans issue. I mean, this was mm-hmm. the hottest of hot issues. Yeah. And they actually ended up having this very respectful conversation. Mm-hmm. And they and then we asked them afterwards, we said, can we follow up and have like a deeper conversation with just the two of you about this? And they were both excited to continue the conversation, to find out more about what does the other person think, why do they think that way, um, to get away from the this media narrative of what this issue is and get down to, oh, we both kind of see it's important. And, and we don't actually believe in the film. I don't believe. I don't believe that Americans think the same thing about a lot of these important issues. I actually think there are key differences. Yeah. But on this issue, they actually had some things in common that they didn't know about. They were like, oh yeah, we both think that parents should be informed about what's going on with their kids, about everything. We think that there's a difference between the trans issue and the gay the gay issue in schools. Like, and they still had substantive disagreements, but they had a great conversation. They were like hugging each other, talking about following up. I mean, it's like, you can't fake that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It was like, it's real. Um, was that the hardest conversation that happens in the film from your perspective, Ben? Like, what do you think was the, what was the most difficult topic for people and was it consistent? Because one of the things I've noticed in, like, ad focus groups is there is kind of weird similarities that you'll see. Like, you'll go to Michigan and show a bunch of stuff and then you'll go to Pennsylvania and you'll go to Georgia. And it's like, wow. I guess people aren't that different because they're all reacting in the same ways and giving sort of the same kinds of feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have that experience? Was there an issue that was like the most lightning rod issue? Each of the issues, I mean, I, I think they were all 
very challenging. I'd say maybe the guns, the conversation around guns was was Mm -hmm. very difficult and in some ways emotional Mm -hmm. because, you know. So so set the table, what was the conversation? So the, the conversation was whether guns create more harm or or not, right? And obviously there was a pro Second Amendment guy who um, was saying that no, 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 that's not the case, right? He thinks that guns, you know, gun ownership does more good than harm. And on the other side, people had had personal experiences where family members had lost their lives as a result of you know, you know, someone, random guy just came and, and shot somebody. And so yeah. that was emotional. It's t- t- saying to somebody, I, I don't think that you should have all these AR-15s in your, in your basement um, because this is what I've experienced in my life, right? Versus someone saying, you know what? When I think of guns, I think of protection. I think of the relationship I have with my dad, mm. where we went out shooting, mm. we bonded over that. He passed on his mm. guns to me, you know, mm. when he passed away. Um, it's a very, very personal thing to me as well. I understand the rules around it, and so they, they get into the rules a little bit, and it turns out that, well, you know, people care about um, gun ownership as a as, uh, means of protection, right? And so there are all these nuances around. And the key thing that we discovered but is if that, I remember correctly, the yeah. woman who lost lost loved one yeah. is also a gun owner. She is a gun owner. So exactly. there was even complexity there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because of what she'd experienced in her life, she understands the value of guns for protection. Um, and so that was a, a common thread there for, for conversation. And or, the, or that stupid people shouldn't be able to own guns. Yeah, right. <laughs> they were like, <laughs> you know, which, I don't know how you, how you right. monitor that. But <laughs> yes. So the conversation became a bit more nuanced about what level of restriction, right, mm-hmm. should we have? Um, a lot of the conversations we'd, we'd realized that these are not binary issues. Now, we frame them as though they're binary. And, and I think that's just a, a technique to kind of lay out all the strong views out there. But as we proceed in the conversations, you realize that, no, 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 they are, they are more nuanced. And if you look at the way the politics is set up, everything is binary. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's team A versus team B, blue versus red. And if you're not for this, you're against this. If you're against this, you're for this and, and so on. But in those types of conversations, I think that's what people discover in their own personal lives that these things are complicated. I'd say the abortion one was a very, very um, difficult one as well. Yeah. Where, you know, you have someone who says that, um, they, they, you know, they, they put their cards on the table, they're very, uh, uh, they're Christian, evangelical, mm-hmm. they have strong views about this stuff, pro-life, but they've themselves had an abortion in their, in their past. And they said, yeah. but not a day goes by that they don't think about this mm-hmm. and she wishes she had had more choices that complicates the discussion it was very very emotional because but people who feel strongly that there should be no um you can't create a blanket law there should be no um uh, exceptions or restrictions and so on and so forth and mm-hmm. and so having those conversations were really really emotional but no one stands up and and and, and wants to mm-hmm. have a fist fight with, with mm-hmm. the other person right mm-hmm because they understand that 
you know, I'm dealing with a, a fellow, you know, fellow human being. Now, three, mm -hmm. three important principles in all these conversations. One is respect, the idea that we have equal dignity. You have as much right to be here as I do. And so we have to respect one another. Number two, authenticity. That when we come to the table, we're coming with our true selves, without masking our views. And we understand that there's a lot of masking that goes on. You know, students are self-censoring. Mm -hmm. We mask because of, of, of social pressure. We say, no, don't mask your views. Give us your honest opinions and your views. And finally, we can explore this through a curiosity too, right? As we ask questions, we try to find out how you feel about this, how somebody else might feel about this. We are being curious about one another. I think these are three important uh, principles that we have to kind of practice, whether during the holidays or, you know, when you're on the bus, on the train, whatever. Let's, let's practice these three things. It'll take us a, a long way. One of the things that is sort of implicit in the experience in this sort of experiment is these are all people that are physically brought together in person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they're looking each other in the eye and, mm -hmm. and, and, and they're getting warmed up and getting to know each other. It's not just harder to be a complete jerk in person, mm -hmm. but there's all this other stuff going on that mm -hmm. I'm not gonna claim I understand, like mm -hmm. pheromones and smells and all these little facial mm -hmm. cues. You know, there's, a, mm -hmm. there's this, um, uh, saying, or maybe it's a fact, I don't know, but there's something like 80% of communication between people is nonverbal. Mm -hmm. It's about posture yeah. and tone of voice and, right. and yeah. facial expression and how you're, whether you're grimacing or not. Totally. And so the thing that's so interesting about that, there's two dynamics that I want to dig into now. One is that, mm -hmm. right? So in person, yeah. you've got all 100% of your communications cues. Yeah. But on Twitter in particular, or any kind of text-based thing, you've, got, you've literally taken 80% of the cues of, of human communication and take, gotten rid of them. Yeah. yeah. You know, we're doing this mostly and on you, YouTube. And, and you have all caps. <laughs> yeah, you have all caps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have the, yeah. the like right. But like even, like, yeah. you know, video's kind of better because you're at least seeing the person. Yeah, sure. So that, But that's still not all, that, you're still not getting to 100%. Mm -hmm. So how do you think about, um, that dynamic and what to do about it in our daily lives? Yeah. Like, yeah. Christine, how about you? I mean, I think, I think this just gets back to local is better. You know, the more that you can have your conversations with your neighbors or go to places or, um, you know, Bob Chalice talks about this, depoliticize things. Also go, not, not, not be involved in politics, but like go to your local block community, you know, gathering and see what the, you know, see what the discussion is. Um, actually get involved in your church or your synagogue or, or wherever, you know, wherever. Be involved locally before you get all up on your high horse about some national issue. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I just think that's the best advice I could give my kids, you know, is if you want to help heal what's going on, like, let's think about how can we, how can we do this in our, in our community first? Um, yeah, it's a, <clears throat> Juliana Schroeder, wonderful psychologist. Uh, she studies the psychology of interactions. She's at mm -hmm. UC Berkeley. Is she, she, is she in the film? No, she's remember. not. Okay. She's not. But she says, text-based communication can be dehumanizing, mm. right? Because of the things that you talked about, the, the, the social cues and all these things that we don't get from that. And so we, we interpret certain things negatively and um, we can be very mean to each other on, yeah. on you know, when we're doing text-based. 
communication. Even when we're using our real name, Nikki Haley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out people are perfectly willing to be jerks with their real name and face in their icon. Indeed, indeed. And, Guilty and... as charged, by the way. I'm not throwing aspersions here. It's like, you know, at some point in the conversations that we had with the focus groups, we asked them, do you think this could have happened um, online? Mm -hmm. And most of them said no. Mm -hmm. In fact, one lady volunteered to say, I am the kind of person who is the worst at this. Like, I'm the troll, I'm saying <laughs> negative things, I'm, and I will get into a fight with anybody online just because. But she says, I just couldn't do it looking at each other, you know, looking at these people in the face. I just couldn't do that. And there's something about having conversations in person, mm -hmm. having the physical presence of another human being next to you, just kind of changes the dynamics. Mm -hmm. And I think we need more of that. Mm -hmm. uh, in our in our daily interactions. Now, now that's not to say that you know uh, social media is, is bad or mm -hmm. we shouldn't have these on online interactions. I think that's great. I don't know what we'd have done without these tools during you know the uh, during 2020, um, 2019, and, yeah. and so on. Yeah. Um, if but, COVID happened in the late 90s, <laughs> it, it may have broken the country for good. <laughs> right. Right. But um, there's just certain things that you can't do. With students in particular, when I work with them. Uh, you know, especially, you know, the ones we call the digital natives, right? They grew up on, on these technologies. Yes. You can tell that the skills for these things have atrophied. Mm -hmm. And so when we are engaging in these types of conversations with them, they're just learning the skills again. And I think it's important for us to practice in our daily lives. There's a related phenomenon. Um, and I've seen this basic equation actually pop up in a couple places. Uh, and that is that about 1% of users are creators mm. that actually like produce content on a regular basis. Like I, th I think on Twitter, this is true. I think in YouTube, this is mm. true that the actual most of the tweets are being generated by 1% of the, of the user base. Mm. Most of the videos are being produced by 1% of the YouTube user base. Mm. Um, then there's like this, next tranche of 9%, roughly, 9 to 10%, who are engaging, commenting, liking, sharing. Mm -hmm. And the rest are lurkers, just looking. Mm -hmm. And so the 90% of lurkers are seeing a world that is constructed by a tiny minority yeah. of the population. That mm -hmm. tracks, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard this math even in, in terms of things like Fortnite and, mm. and mm. Roblox. It's like it, it's almost like a a kind of weird natural law of these mm. of these sort of public creator systems. Mm. Um, how do you think that does yeah, does that track and how do you think that interacts and informs like what we think we're seeing to be true? Like we mm. open up a screen and we think the world's exploding and and, and going to hell in a handbasket, but it's like one percent of us. Right. Saying that. Yeah, I, I think just understanding that Twitter is not the real world, I think <laughs> is really important. <laughs> and well that, said. <laughs> yeah, and that most people are not on this stuff, uh, or at least even if they're, they're on there, they're not there every single day. Mm -hmm. But again, going back to that 20%, they are there um, frequently. That definitely shapes the way that you view the world. Over time, mm -hmm. one of the things that's happened, and you know, Tyler Cowen talks about this in his book, The Complacent Class, 
that we we're becoming more and more segregated, basically um, placing ourselves in um, communities of like like-minded people, right? Geographically and online in virtual spaces. It's like the big sort. The big like, sort. Oh, I'm just gonna move to Texas so I don't have to deal with all the communists. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Wait, that sounds, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> so it's likely, very likely that, you know, you're, you know, grocery shopping and, and the person who stands behind you um, agrees with you on a huge chunk of things. So there isn't as much difference, right? And you're, the people you're following online, um, the different, you know, groups that you are part of online, they agree with you on everything. And so, you know, the, the result of this sorting is that you, you begin to swap your more benign views for more extreme ones. Mm. Uh, why? Why does that, why does being like birds of a feather flocking together harden or make things more extreme? And what do you even mean by extreme? It could be the, the, the simplest thing from the weather, altitude of a particular area. Uh, we egg each other on. Um, basically, oh, don't you think it's a little bit? Yeah, I think it's a little bit cold in here. Oh, yeah, wow, wow, it's so cold. It's so... And the one person or the two people who may not feel that way may not voice it and you just kind of go along just because. Mm -hmm. And then by practice and habit, you have formed a very strong views, especially when you're not engaging other people who view the world very, very differently. Um, and I think that's what has happened where. Whereas before, the person down the street might have some crazy views or whatever, but hey, that's Uncle Joe, whatever, Uncle Tom, whatever his name is. And uh, it's like, yeah, he's, he will spot off some, some interesting ideas, but hey, he's, he's part interesting of Interesting ideas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, whereas now, you know, we don't get as much in our sort of spaces. Um, that person is, is seen as, as the enemy. And I think we're doing that uh, in the in the online um, mm -hmm. spaces as well, and I think that's the thing that we have to try to guard ourselves against, or at least be aware. Um, well, I think we just we lo we're losing track of reality, though. Also, mm -hmm. I mean, which is that is not good for democracy. That's not good for citizenship. That's not good for community, right? If you are so let's say it's a bell curve, right? And so if you're getting all of your news and everything from over here in this vertical, like you can't then, then let's say you're closer to the middle, you're only gonna be hearing from all these people and you're gonna move a little bit this way, right? Cause you're like, oh, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being, you know, too whatever, you know, we're labeling, we're thinking about it. It's, it's like the reality of how, of how it's working. And that's not good for civil society. Like I'm, um, it happened to be the case that like we were scheduled to have this conversation and then I've been grappling with what I feel like is happening for me right now yeah. in this, because in the past couple months, especially in the aftermath of um, of the Hamas attack yeah. on the t on the October seventh, there has been a set of things that have played out, and they're in the national conversation, and they hit home for me also because I have an eighteen year old that's going to be going away to college, and you're yeah. a college professor, and I want to really get into this part. Not a college professor. Or co you're at a you're at a school. Yeah, right, you're, at, you're, right. you're surrounded by college right, students, right. and you're being mm -hmm. professorial <laughs> with students. So what am I talking about here? I'm talking about in the aftermath of um, the Hamas attacks, yeah. some subset 
of Western liberal students, and I mean liberal in the broader sense, but also in the narrower political sense, mm-hmm. like responded by taking to the streets and, be, and being like very pro-Palestinian broadly, but a fair amount being like anti-Israeli and anti-Jewish. Yeah. Not just pro-Palestinian. Yeah, and, I, I actually even, think the, the pro-Palestinian issue is being pro-Palestinian is fine. It being pro-Hamas is different than that. And 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 being pro-Palestinian does not have to mean that you're not pro-Jewish and pro-Israel, actually. Like those ideas can coexist. Right. So I, I just we should be careful. For sure. But that. I, I want to lay out kind of important. my perception, because I think this is the stuff that we're going through now in the national, I hate the term national conversation, like what does that mean? But in terms of like volume of things being said when you turn on the news or go on a screen, we're getting hit with this a lot right now. It's it's in the ether, it's a big deal. And I think about the immediate aftermath of 9-11. I was in New York City and like the whole country came together and the whole world, almost without exception, was like this is horrible. And there was just a long period of like, no, 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 Whatever the grievances were, are, that is this, we, this is too far. And now 20 years later, that's not the reaction. That's mm-hmm. not what's happened. What's happened is way more complicated and there's way larger groups of people who I don't understand why or how mm-hmm. are like, no, America's horrible and the, and the Jews are a disaster and but like this stuff, this like, this is the most inflammatory thing going on right now. And I feel myself being almost radicalized in, 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 in watching this happen. Yeah. So, yes, I can like unplug and just go for a walk and I do that. <laughs> and that's true. But it's also like, yes, but I'm going to send my son into these universities. Mm. And it appears like there's a political monoculture that has given rise to this. And so there does seem like there's structural things that aren't just about social media and polarization, that there's some mm-hmm. other things that are going on. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think that the news is an accurate reflection of what is actually going on on all college campuses right now? I, I don't know. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I, 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 the, the problem is it's like I don't know what's real and what's anecdotal and what's selection bias. So I see all that. I have a lot of friends that are that are college professors, but they're all somewhat like-minded. So they're like, universities are all like a woke disaster. <laughs> like that's what they say to me. <laughs> but then I talk to a fair amount of students who say the same thing. Yeah. And then I look at the political distribution of certain disciplines. Like you can't like, you can't find a Republican in in, in many schools in the humanities, hmm. in the liberal arts. Like they aren't there. And I see reasonable people like Jonathan Haidt who map this out and are like, no, 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 the problem is real. This isn't just about perception and conversation. Our institutions of higher education have gotten distorted in ways that are really damaging. And this is, the movie's not really directly about this. Jonathan Haidt does love the movie, by the way. (laughs) Well, that's good. (laughs) But that suggests there's some other things going on that aren't about being polarized by social media or, or, or losing our social skills. There's some other things. Can you talk about that? Like you're in this, you're in a, the higher ed environment. You're talking to these college students. Help me out. It's, it's difficult. I, I don't know that there's one answer that addresses your question. 
It's I a terrible question. It's a it, rambling, it, massive question. It's, <laughs> it's fine. I, I do think some things have shifted. You mentioned 9-11. What we saw in the aftermath of 9-11 is not just getting into Afghanistan, but getting into Iraq. And people learning that there were no weapons of mass destruction. Oh, yeah. That leads to a huge distrust of institutions. Mm -hmm. we had, Justifiably. We had the financial crisis, 2008-2010. Um, we were assured by the bureaucrats that, you know, everything is fine, right? And we were told that we we're having a, a, a psychological crisis or whatever, what have you. And, and then COVID. Of, yes, and then COVID happened. And so you've seen a decline in trust of institutions, um, including institutions that are engaged in things like defense and, and war making and things like mm -hmm. that. And I think you are seeing an overcompensation on the other side, where there are people who will just not trust anything and have to maybe think about uh, an extreme opposite of, of the, the, the situation that, that we're seeing. So I think that's one challenge there. The other challenge too is that um, there is a lot of, I think, a lot of young people over the, over the past several decades, and some of these young people have grown up into certain institutions, blah, blah, but a lot of people who care about virtues, right? They care about things like justice. It's very, very important to them. And they have been taught to think about the world in, in certain perspectives. Um, and, it, and it's, it can be very easy to look at the world in those perspectives. It's, it's almost like if you have one framework and one lens of looking at the world, uh, it seems clearer, but it's not always the complete picture, right? Um, and so you have you know, people who care about justice and they, they, um, they have been exercised about this. But I think that it, you require um, another set of, of, of virtues if you want to understand the world effectively, right? So justice is important, but you have to think about mercy. You have to think about prudence. You have to think about wisdom. You have to think about... These are classical virtues. Exactly, mm -hmm. classical mm -hmm. virtues. And I think that we have to look at where people are motivated uh, towards and and there should probably be some some rebalancing. It doesn't answer your question, well, but, but also like virtue signaling too. Yeah. Like we need to be sure that we're actually signaling the right virtues, yeah. right? Like I, I was thinking about um, as you're talking, Jen Merkishvili, who's doing. Mm -hmm. She's she's one of the experts in the film, and she actually is Jewish. And in the wake of of October seventh, um, has actually done a couple of conversations at the University of Pittsburgh with her Muslim colleague on cultivating compassion and curiosity and asking questions rather and having these conversations, difficult conversations around how do we cultivate compassion in in a time like this, and they're doing it on their university campus. So, I think I think that there are a lot of protests and there are a lot of students who are saying a lot of stuff who are going to grab headlines also right now but i also believe that there's you know this is this goes back to our core difference i think that there's good in the world and we should try to celebrate we want to celebrate and like and 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 hold that up as we want more of this i want i want the i want the virtue of curiosity and you know compassion towards your fellow human being and our classical liberal values of you know mutual respect and dignity of the individual and free speech like that i want i want those to be upheld mm -hmm. and celebrated 
one of the things that feels like it's part of the changing landscape in America um, is the collapse of perceptions of race relations. Mm. So um, one of the many things that has broken my brain in late 2023 mm -hmm. is watching um, Coleman Hughes mm -hmm. be invited to give a TED talk mm -hmm. uh, about um, color blindness, mm -hmm. which, and, and, I, and it, mm -hmm. I encourage everyone who's watching to go and see, watch this TED talk. Yeah. It is entirely reasonable. Yeah. And if you're like, if you're remotely like me, or I, I think maybe like most Americans actually, you will watch this TED talk and be like, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's like Martin Luther King, right? Yeah, that's all. That all makes sense. Like if, if he had come to Penn State when I was there in the late 90s, and given that talk, it would have been like utterly unremarkable in a certain sense. Like, mm -hmm. oh yes, we all agree with this. This is, mm. this is like the ideal we want to strive towards. That our society should like not make race the primary thing that we structure our society around. It's not that it's not important. It's not that it's not part of who we are. But it's not. Discrimination isn't good. Mm -hmm. It's bad. Mm -hmm. The staff revolted against this talk and almost didn't release it. The staff at, at TED? TED. At TED. Mm -hmm. And the only reason it did get released is because of a, a, a like a tortured negotiation in which Coleman had to ultimately agree to give a to participate in a debate with someone who took the other side and that they would release that debate at the same time. Hmm. Now you can be like, who cares? This is just some stupid video. But it actually matters a lot because A, TED is actually like a giant cultural force. Mm -hmm. It's it's TED Talk. I mean, we, the last time we saw each other, we were giving kind of mm -hmm. TED Talks right. <laughs> at the State Policy Network. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like become like Kleenex. It's mm -hmm. that much of a cultural meme. Mm -hmm. And it's, it feels like a snapshot of something that's real that's happened in this country. <clears throat> and one of the things that he points to in the talk is that if you go back to 2013, Pew Research did these surveys. Mm -hmm. Two-thirds of Americans and two-thirds of white Americans and black Americans believed that race relations in America were either good or very good. Mm -hmm. And that steadily collapsed to now two-thirds think the opposite. Hmm. Two-thirds of white and black people both think that, think it's, that they're not good. race relations are bad. And, and like the number of people that basically said they're very bad went from being single digit to being, it's like reversed order. Hmm. Has this played into some of the things that you're seeing in, in the work you're doing with the, with the center around polarization? Like how much hmm. of this experience that we're all having is about what seems to be like a broadly shared belief that race relations <laughs> in America have mm -hmm. collapsed? Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with the perception problem that I talked about earlier on um, when we met in Chicago at SBN uh, I one of the things I said was you know if you had asked the average American in in the 1950s about interracial marriage you'd only have found about five percent of people who would have been supportive of it today that number that percentage is what 98 percent or, yeah. or beyond <clears throat> so in reality the way we feel about each other has changed dramatically uh, in terms of race relations. Mm -hmm. But 
if you're seeing, if you've been in the era of Michael Brown, mm -hmm. Trayvon Martin, Ferguson, Ferguson, George Floyd, George Floyd it, it does have an impact on the way that you think about America, your perceptions of it. When the murder of George Floyd happened, you know, I have siblings outside of, of this country who would, uh, you know, call me and ask me whether I'm okay, right? Am I, am I safe, you know, where I am and things like that. And it, it gave me the impression that there's a very, very different view of how people are kind of like just looking at America in this context in, in particular. Um, so I think that the sensationalism around news plays a huge role. Now that's not to say that things are perfect with regards to race relations. Um, you know, there are still challenges out there. But if you ask me, and I think you've asked most African Americans about which era they prefer to live in, I think this is a much better time for everybody. I think there's a there's a possession problem going on. It's also the ideological battles. I think they play a huge role. You know, Yasha Monk in his recent book called The Identity mm -hmm. Trap talks about this stuff. And Yasha is a progressive. He's on the left, but he's trying to look at um, the left's attachment to the issues around ideology in a, in a very charitable way. Say, I want to take these ideas seriously. Mm -hmm. And he says I can trace these things back to you know, postmodernism, mm -hmm. uh, postcolonialism, and the critical theories, right? There's a lot of thinkers who are saying, like, a lot of what's going on here in our public discourse, especially at the university level, mm -hmm. is informed by this. Right. By right. this sort of mindset, this victimhood, mm -hmm. like, oppressor oppressed as the mm -hmm. primary lens through which you see the world. Right. And that's very divisive. If, right. if, like we are always in a battle of oppressor versus oppressed. Right. Mm. Right. But that's like definitionally like a war. Mm. Like right. you're my enemy. Yeah. Where are you? Oh, okay, mm. so something happens in Israel. Well, I think like who's the more person of color to be sympathetic to? I guess it's the Palestinians, so I'm with them. And I haven't and that seems like a big part of what is going on for some subset of Americans. Like that's their lens, that's their filter. Yeah, I mean, our identities, um, you know, in terms of, you know, phenotypical attributes seem to be coming more and more important for, for some people. And, you know, Yasha's saying that that's a problematic way of, of viewing the world. Now, you could be concerned about race relations and gender equality and all these things, but the way to, to address these things is good old liberalism, right? Good old and what liberalism. do you mean by that, <laughs> right? Because I yeah. think li liberalism is a, is a term we've all used a couple times, mm -hmm. but when you say that, what do you mean? For the, for the viewer who maybe just hears that and thinks, what do you mean, like Democrats? Like, what, no. do you, what do you mean? Liberalism is when we take the default position that we are one another's dignified equals. Um, we are equal, regardless of what we might look like, we are equal. And, you know, liberalism has four corners, as Emily Chandler Wright would say. There is economic liberalism, right, which means that um, we, we have access to, to property, um, we have access to opportunities that we can take advantage of 
um, and, and there are contractual things that allow us to engage in mutually beneficial trade and so on and so forth. That the stuff that you know people like us classical liberals care about, think about the Adam free market, the free market, Adam Smith stuff, right? And and liberals can disagree yeah. the extent to which um, you know the free market should be allowed to to <clears throat> to operate. Political liberalism is the second one, right? Access to uh, to participate in the political process, voting becomes an important one. But you know, freedom of speech and of of, of uh, religion, expression, all of these things are incredibly important for political liberalism. Cultural liberalism, the ability to practice our um, you know beliefs and uh, engage in our cultural practices as much as we'd like, uh, that's important. And then finally, epistemic liberalism, hmm. the freedom of thought. Um, and and not masking our views for fear of uh, some kind of uh, external pressure is critical. And so, when if we are giving each other equal dignity, it means that we have to sort of be firing all four cylinders, so to speak, mm -hmm. equal access in in terms of economics, political, cultural, and the epistemic fear. So that's what I mean when I say old school liberalism and that I think we oversimplify um, each other when we are only think about each other in a particular like um, identity lens, right? That being black just doesn't tell you anything about who I am, right? Um, I mean, I think back to that, uh, what was his name? The the the, the character from- Dre. Dre, mm -hmm. like it's, if you're just, operating on pattern recognition and you see that guy across the room, mm -hmm. you are going to get it wrong about mm -hmm. what he believes, mm -hmm. like in a big way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so it's simple. Let's not make assumptions about people. Um, Don't judge a book by its so, cover, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but also, like, this is the thing that can save us. To, to invest in these values, and I love this this framework that Emily lays out, but mm -hmm. this return to truly liberal values, because when we see both parties going crazy, it's generally because they're eschewing those classical liberal values of, of mutual respect, tolerance, free speech, you know, the things that our founding fathers actually fought and died for, that's where we should lean in. Um, and, and we can disagree about how the policies are applied and all these things. But we have to have a framework where we all say, no, no, these things are actually really important, though. One of the things that's interesting about the movie and about all these focus groups is it, it they're all very civil. People are sparring with each other about their ideas and their values. And it's like this call to come together. But I don't think many people change their minds? <laughs> nobody, nobody changes their mind about anything, actually. <laughs> like, we did group after right. group after group, and then we right. asked them, how many of you changed their minds? Crickets. Yeah. Well, and I've seen, there's been, again, like, social science studies always need to be taken with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. But I have seen that there's been attempts to look at this and be scientific about it, and that people will often actually dig in when confronted mm. with opposing points of view. It, it, it does beg the question, how do we ever learn anything new? But what was, 
what's your takeaway from the fact that nobody changed so their They minds? don't change their minds about the topics. They do change their minds about how they feel about people on the other side. And actually, that is the key takeaway. Because actually viewing people who disagree with you as your fellow citizens, as part of this, you know, American experiment that we're all part of, like, I feel like that's like, that is the noblest thing that we can have. You know, our founding fathers didn't have a vision where like Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson were gonna suddenly agree about stuff because that wasn't gonna happen right. in our founding, you know what I mean? Yeah. But they did believe that we could, we could coexist in civil society together and that we could flourish. And like, that's, that's where I think we wanna get back to. Uh, absolutely, we went in not with the view that we're going to change people's minds. We went in letting them know that the goal was not to change each mm -hmm. other's minds. And so we were not surprised by that outcome. But what Christy said is absolutely right. People started to say, oh, well, I kind of see how, you know, you think about these issues now. Um, There's an interesting story by Monica Guzman, who wrote a book called I Never Thought of It That Way. Mm -hmm. When the 2016 election happened, she's a uh, Mexican immigrant. Her parents are Mexican immigrants, you know, and her parents are hardcore Trump supporters. Yeah, I, I know a lot of people like this who are Mexican yes. immigrants, first generation. Yes, and they all like. I think most of the Mexicans I know, yeah, voted for Trump. Hmm. Interesting, but no. anyway, I digress. Yeah, no, it's, it's, she's a progressive, right, and lives in Seattle. And the 2016 election happens. 76 percent of her county goes Hillary, mm -hmm. and they wake up, and she and her friends are just totally shocked that that there are parts of the country that don't think that you know Hillary ought to be the president. And so she embarked on this journey, and part of what led to this is that she also looks at her parents differently. She loves her parents, and she hears people say very negative things about her parents, and she, no, these are yeah. lovely people. Mm -hmm. So she and her friends take a bus, and go to a different part of the country that's the opposite of her county. And it's a interesting county in, in rural Oregon. 76% of the folks there voted for Donald Trump. So total flip. Total opposite. Mm -hmm. And they get down there and they start having conversations. They want to know about these people, what they care about. And they realize that the things that these people cared about were very different from the kinds of things they thought they cared about the identity issues and, and all these other issues that no, these guys don't care about that. But they cared about a, a law that had to do with the, the water in the area that would allow the federal government to take over their land. And I think they'd had some battles with the yeah. you know, government prior to that. They were land management type stuff. Yeah, and they were sure that Donald Trump was gonna be the person who could help them protect their land. Hmm. They didn't care about all the other hmm. stuff. And they were just enlightened by that conversation. But the thing that did it for, for her was just one of the guys uh, in, the, in the county in Oregon said, for the first time, we felt seen, right? For the first time, we felt seen. By Donald Trump. No, you felt seen by or by, the the, by Monica. Uh, Monica. By and Monica group. and right. Yeah, that's really right. cool. Because if you're in the rural area, you have to do stuff in the area. You have to go and sell your goods, your eggs, or your whatever. Right? Oh, you have to do business there. And but people in the, the urban areas don't have to come to the rural areas for mm -hmm. anything, 
Right. No, so it's like you go to the grocery store yeah. and chicken emerges yeah. from the heavens in yeah. a in a pre-wrapped container. Boom, it's there. <laughs> and that's it. Like where did the chicken come from? Oh, the grocery store. <laughs> right. Like that's where it comes from. So <laughs> it was fascinating to to her to hear him say that that he felt seen. Mm. I think a lot of what we we are doing with these focus groups and with conversations around the country, people are, you know, talking to one another that make each other feel as though they are, they're being seen by their fellow American, mm. I think makes all the difference in the world. Mm. You don't have to change your views. And they, they, they walked away not, you know, not changing your views on anything, but it was that I've gained a, maybe a little bit of level of respect from my fellow Americans, and that was incredibly valuable to them. Mm. I think that's part of what we try to do here too. I did a video a couple weeks ago about how one way to think of identity is a set of circles. Mm -hmm. You know, like so, and there's there's just a lot of them. You could you could almost say it's like an intersectional way to look at it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's interesting because both of you have talked about being an American mm -hmm. as being something that's a place to find unity. Dig into that for me because I think one of the things that I've personally seen change in my lifetime is in our politics. It's gone from a world where left and right. You know, again, it maybe just at the national scale, let's say, you know, to call a fellow American, to call like another politician like anti-American was like really like a slur. Mm. And it does feel like we have moved to a place where at least a subset of our political class, and this is, this is, it is probably more on the left, but it's, it is in some, in some ways on both if you dig below the surface. Mm -hmm. um, there's more people who are willing to be like, no, this country sucks. America sucks. It needs to be overhauled. I'm not proud to be an American. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. that's, and we see it practically, right? The Wall Street Journal had a poll showing that patriotism had really collapsed that like in a significant way among, among Americans. Mm -hmm. So how do you think about that? Because like, if, if the goal here partly is to say, hey, we can have different points of view, but we're, we're, still, we're, we're Americans. Like that's what we have in common. Yeah. That's becoming something that, you know, there's, there's a fair amount of people who say like the, that the American flag is triggering. Mm -hmm. that might be, they might be whack jobs, they might be some fringe, I don't yeah. know. But how do you think about this, Christy? <laughs> <laughs> I, I get the hard one. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I'm actually, I'm most, I'll happy to go next, but I'm yeah. curious okay. because you really have chosen to be an American in every way, and it's something I love about you. Yeah, Ben, you're, you are a first-generation immigrant to this country, yeah, yeah. right? So how do you think about this? When I go to campuses across the United States, I often tell them about my American story. <clears throat> I grew up in Ghana, West Africa. Growing up, one of the most memorable experiences was when my father would sit me down in a, at a kitchen and say, hey, um, when you walk outside of these four walls, don't talk about your opinions. Don't challenge authority. Don't push back. Otherwise, we'll end up where we started. Now, my father, first of six brothers, grew up really poor, walked to school barefoot. He had to, at some point, step away from school because his parents just couldn't afford just the basic necessities. He peddled newspapers on the streets, and he did all kinds of things to cut the long story short. Eventually, entrepreneurship was the way out. 
And so he built a business, built a factory, employed hundreds of people. In Ghana. In Ghana. And when he talks about, otherwise we'll end up where we started, he's talking about a Marxist revolution that we had in Ghana in the late 70s, early 80s. And they nearly threw my dad in jail because he was a businessman. And, you know, sort of the Marxist view about value of labor and so on. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, about a third or two thirds of his assets were all taken away. He had to build everything back up again. And when he says to me, be mindful of what you say out there, that could get us into trouble. That made an impression on me. Uh, and I had to be very, very reserved and, and very careful. When I came to college in the United States and started to get into philosophy, took my first philosophy course, I do really well. Professor at the bottom of my paper says, I get an A, he says, you have a lot of good things to say, say them in class. And no one had ever said that to me before. Hmm. And that was really powerful to a young 18-year-old kid. And I, I say that that experience transformed me from a quiet and reserved kid to a, uh, a confident young man. When I go around colleges in the U.S. and I talk to them about this, I tell them you have amazing values in America. You have to work hard to preserve. And I think that we have not done a good enough job explaining to our young citizens how valuable some of these principles are. Now, historically, not everything has been universalized, so that, you know, yeah. but that's the project for us. Mm -hmm. Now, we're in a process of sort of renegotiating <laughs> what America is. Um, Sam Goldman, professor at George Washington University, wrote a book called After Nationalism. And he says that there are three narratives that have described America from its inception. The first is the, uh, the covenant narrative. You know, which when you hear the term covenant, you hear sort of the biblical mm -hmm. connotations to yeah. that. But what did that what did that mean for in this case? It means that America is a um, it's a special uh, uh, nation for certain um, group of people, um, and that America uh, God has a special plan for America. Um, it resonated with a certain kind of person, right? Mostly Protestant, mostly in the New England area. So these were sort of the, in a sense, sort of religious refugees that right. came to America mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. yeah. were the yeah. the outcasts and like right. Arthur Brooks says, like the, the, the riffraff right. and came and set up and said, okay, we get to practice what yeah. we believe here. Right. And so this is, the, that, this is what we're talking about, this sort yeah. of early covenant, right. sort of the colonists. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, but you can understand how it may not necessarily resonate with everybody else. Yeah, no, that doesn't resonate with me especially. <laughs> right. And so we get to a place uh, about 100 years later where it becomes the crucible, right? The whole idea of the melting pot yeah. was that you come to America, you, you, you're, you're melted and you become a certain kind of person. Um, this is the one that resonates with me. Because <laughs> my, my family's yeah. late 1800s, early, mm -hmm. early 1900s, mm -hmm. Italian immigrants, that wave, right. mm -hmm. that's the immigration wave that happens where. Right. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. Ellis Island Americans. Yeah. But to the extent that people expected the whatever emerges out of this melting pot to be a certain kind of person, um, as we've seen more immigration, not everyone falls into a particular you know category. That narrative fades. We get a new narrative, which is the creed, right? The creed is about the 
all the values that we like to talk about related to the Declaration of Independence, uh, mm -hmm. the Constitution, and so on. Um, and you still see certain bits of these narratives around. The creed narrative existed a long time through World War II and beyond, especially when America is facing external conflict. So we come around, you know. The flag. The flag, exactly. The Constitution. Exactly. Um, but now, there are challenges to that. You know, whether it's the 1619 Project or what have you, right? Mm -hmm. And, and so we are going through a reimagining of what America ought to be. We're renegotiating these things. Um, that's where we are. I think that's that's the challenge. So when I when I say that there are values that are important, because America, I think, has always been about these values. Um, it's always been about these principles. And some of the most pessimistic about where America is right now. If they dig deep, they would see that we've come a long way, right? We've come a long way from where we were and that there's so much that we ought to be proud of and so much more work to do, but we are much better off than we were, um, I would say. So we have to retell these these, uh, these stories. About the I think, I mean, and, and I think that's where we get back to, and with the film though also, is this like, this sense of like, restless innovation in terms of even how our how our policies relate to one another how our communities relate to one another i think that there are and this gets back to my optimistic mindset perhaps <laughs> is that like there's ways you can take that you can look at the you can look at you know, a pro problems in our criminal system, for example. You can look at them and say, mm -hmm. oh my God, this is so terrible, you know? Or you can look at them, which, which is true. Or you can look at them and say, there are so many different ways we can engage and try to fix things here. And isn't it incredible that we live in a country where I can say these things out loud, where I can work with my fellow, my fellow citizens, where I can like come together and try to change the things that I view as not just. Like, isn't that, isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that we can have, you know, that we can have students protesting on college campuses? You know, isn't it amazing that we live in this incredible country? Are we gonna just say, like, are we, none of us, you wouldn't say America is perfect. None of us would yeah. say that, right? But like, that's the point. It's, it's, it's the American experiment. And so I don't know if you call that the creed or mm. the whatever you call yeah. it, but like, yeah. that's what I feel like that is where you, when you get Americans together and get them talking, mm -hmm. that's where I think Americans want to stack hands and go, you know? Yeah. It's funny because, and, um, and Ben, as a first-generation immigrant, I, I want to hear if how if how this whether this resonates with you. My anecdotal experience is that the most hardcore Americans who are like America is awesome tend to be first-generation immigrants. Mm -hmm. uh, that's been my experience: is that um, we kind of we kind of take the country for granted hmm. when we're born here. We take for granted that. The things we have that we have, like, oh, I can say what I want and no one's going to show up at my dad's office to, to walk him to some interrogation room because his son said something wrong. 
Like that's it's like it's not that's not even in the field of vision. Which actually happens all over the world. All over the world. Right. And and I think one of the things so that's I guess has that been your experience personally and in communities where you encounter first generation Americans that they're like mm-hmm. because I I think the immigration issue is fraught and I think that you know for all the problems of like people that are on the left this is an issue for people on the right like the, 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 this like hardening of the view of, of what it, who immigrants are and what they represent to this country yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you know where you sit is where you stand. That when certain narratives, certain situations do shape the way that you see the world and think about the world. Hmm. And so, as a first-generation immigrant, the contrast is huge for you, right? Where you compare yourself from where you came hmm. and so on, it's huge. But as a when you're born here, you're, yeah, it's definitely taken for granted. I mean. Coming to college in the United States was a huge deal for me. So, how old were you when you came to the U.S.? Eighteen. Okay, so you. Yeah. Uh, and you so, were young. Yeah. You were. You were probably more of a young adult than the typical American eighteen-year-old, to be honest. But, <laughs> right. <laughs> just at, at the level of maturity, I'm just going to make a bet. I'm going to bet. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of my friends who came in around the same time too, uh, you know, took this thing extremely seriously and. It, it was startling to us when we would talk to other Americans who, like, yeah, college, yeah, we, I guess we go to college. I guess we, it's a thing we do when we graduate high school. Oh, yeah. Da, da, da. Um, so, yeah, you know, there's a sense in which people definitely take this amazing experiment in pluralism for granted, mm. you know? The other thing I would say is that um, most of the the celebrated democracies that we've seen in history have not been um, heterogeneous societies. Okay. And so the celebrated... What um, do you mean by that? means they are, um, you know, one ethnic group. Like right? the Greeks. Like, yeah, Greeks, yeah. Right. And... Or the British. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then the most celebrated multi-ethnic societies have not been democratic, right? It had to be sort of enforced from top down. You know, look at some of the empires that, you know, we've, we've studied in history. And so for the first time in world history, we're seeing large, growing, multi-ethnic, multi-ideological, you know, democracies. It's not just the United States, but you see that in, um, you know, places like Germany and UK and other places. Yasha Monk writes about this in his book, The Great Experiment. Um, and so part of what we're dealing with is really learning how to navigate um, all of this because what we're actually experiencing has never been been seen before. Mm-hmm. So we're going through growing pains is what I'm, I'm saying. Uh, and people like me look at this and say, okay, this is an opportunity for us to, 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 to get in. Are we going to look at the problems half full, a glass half full or half empty? I'm one of those people who always likes to look at the glass half full and you know, put our shoulders to the wheel and, and um, you know, do our best to um, you know, help, help make things better. This is why we get along. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what this, what this reminds me of? What this reminds me of is um, something that Jordan Peterson said several years ago that I think is actually really powerful. And, and, he's, and he says this from time to time, because you know, he's got his sort of greatest hits. And it's that, 
conservatives, and I mean this in like the small c, like to want to preserve tradition, mm -hmm. the type, the sort of psychological type, um, they play this really important role because they um, they come upon you know Chesterton's fence, this sort of uh, thought experiment uh, where you you're in a field and you come across a fence and it's like what what should we do with this fence? What's this fence? And the conservative says, well, we should leave it. It was put here for a reason, and it was probably put here for a good reason. And so they are the defenders of the tradition, of the things that have come before, and that liberals and you know open people more inclined towards openness, more inclined to see this fence and be like, I don't see any animals, I don't see any tracks. This fence is some left, let's get rid of this fence. This fence is stupid. This yeah. fence is preventing me from running through the field. Mm -hmm. And that that tension is utterly essential, that it is something that is not resolvable in a certain sense. Like you said mm -hmm. in these conversations, people don't really change their minds. Mm -hmm. And we can't even, we shouldn't necessarily even want there to be total consensus. Like total consensus is probably like on the path to pure despotism. Mm -hmm. So instead there's this like tension mm -hmm. where, hey, I think marriage should be called what it's been called because there's a reason. And no, I think we should expand and change that definition because of other reasons and because I don't care about what we did in the past. And that's this, doing that in a way that doesn't involve Hatfield and McCoy killing each other mm -hmm. seems like a step in the right direction for the human creature. Mm -hmm. Because that was the old school way. Like, oh no, I don't like you, I'm going to kill you. Mm -hmm. Oh. <coughs> Mm -hmm. You got different colored paint, dead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is the risk I see. Mm -hmm. We, partly for, because of this rise of identity, partly because of all the things we've talked about, mm -hmm. we're flirting with a return to Hatfield and McCoy style. Yeah. Right? But like, like, let's linger on a little bit of the negative for a minute here, mm -hmm. Mr. and Mrs. Optimist. Yeah. <laughs> we're... We, it does feel like that, and no. it feels like I'm hearing that concern from people who are like you, frankly, yeah. who are eminently reasonable, not inclined towards being bombastic. Yeah. Or like, like if we don't... No, there's actually really good research that if we don't get a handle on this, if we continue down these paths of, of labeling, of otherizing, of dehumanizing your fellow citizen, that there's actually evidence that we can get to really horrible tipping points. And we cover that in the film a little bit. We talk to a scholar who goes to Afghanistan and talks about how the Taliban actually used this labeling as a tool for cultivating division, where she talks about how that in Afghanistan it used to be that it wasn't about your label. It was about, I was from here. It was about local communities, local politics, and that the nationalization and the labeling that happened in that country, actually, she saw it serve to tear the country apart. And I'm, I'm oversimplifying her research, but like yeah. this, this, it's an has, interesting part of the this has really real consequences. We have to get this right. That's why I made this film. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to make a documentary. <laughs> you know how hard it is to make a documentary. Yeah, it's sort of torturous. It's horrible. <laughs> but, but what else are we going to do? I have to do something to help save the world for my children. And I can't do everything. And this film isn't going to make the world, like, isn't going to change the world. But it can be at least a step in the right direction. Go see it. Go tell your friends to see it. Like, host a screening. Because yeah. it's like, it's, it's the thing that I thought I could do to help 
us move away from the precipice. And you probably know a lot more about the research that mm. I'm talking about because you're yeah, so smart. No. <laughs> He's so smart. He reads like everything. <laughs> no, no, not more than the average person. But That is not true. <laughs> <laughs> I think when we, some of the things are troubling, right? When you hear the negative attitudes towards inter-party marriages is worse than interracial or mm. interfaith or all these other things. Yeah you realize there is something happening with the way that um, we're engaging with each other politically. And at the very least, this makes, is, makes it very difficult for us to address any of the problems that we complain about, you know, uh, whether at the you know, state, local, or, or federal levels that we complain about, it just makes it very, very difficult for us to address them. So I think, I think it's, <clears throat> it's important. And, I like the way you framed it, so the, the tensions, right? Um, I think there's a tendency for those on, 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 the, on the right to have this sort of triumphalist way of looking at America, and there are those on the left who have a very, very pessimistic way yeah. of looking at the world. And, uh, you know, there has to be some give and take, you know, along the way that that tension, I think, will remain for for the foreseeable future. But it doesn't mean that we cannot at least come together from time to time to address problems. I think the challenge is when people just want to destroy everything, yeah. right? They, they, you know, I'm, as Edmund Burke would say, rage and frenzy can pull more down in half an hour than wisdom, um, than prudence, deliberation, and foresight can build in a hundred years. Mm. And that's know, a really great quote. It, yeah, I, I love it. Um, but it takes a long time to build institutions, uh, to build communities, to build certain things. And from time to time, we have to be mindful of the things that we do that wanna, you know, turn things down. And it's not just one group that wants to destroy things, right? You've heard drain the swamp or, you know, whatever, right. tear it down and all of these things. Protect our democracy. Our, right, right. And it's, it's a problem. But I think there are a lot of people who want to solve problems, right? And we, we call them the exhausted majority. More in common has this research on the exhausted majority. Uh, they're not on either, you know, extremes, but um, they they are exhausted from all this this political infighting. But even that even that statistic that you called on around like how more people are against like inter-party marriage. Yeah, yeah. If, you know, um, Tony points this out in his yeah. book that like if you dig a little below that then and you ask people, you know, if you ask people another version of that question, if you're like, if you say, well, you know, your daughter's dating a, you know, you're a Republican, your daughter's dating a Democrat, but he comes to he comes to Thanksgiving dinner and he's lovely. He doesn't like cause a ruckus at the dining room table. He doesn't talk about politics. He doesn't talk about politics, mm -hmm. you know, is like, now do you think it's okay? And people then are like fine with it. You know, mm -hmm. people don't want to have, they don't want to have the conflict come into their lives. Mm -hmm. They don't want the conflicts that they see in the media narrative to be what defines their dining room table. And we just have to remind them that it doesn't have to. Most and, people are really nice. Yeah. Like they really are. <laughs> that's, that's certainly my experience of not just America, but like around the world. Yeah. yeah. I, agree, I agree with that for yeah. completely. I mean, and my, my pushback, with Tony on this would be, mm -hmm. well, why is it that when you invoke Democrat or Republican, yeah. the first thought that comes to mind is, oh my gosh, I, I can't have my kid marry this person. Right. 
uh, it's I think it's because they have been affected by this affective polarization. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, I agree with that. And too. so, not yeah. to go back to pessimism, but just to say, it's a problem that we have to figure out how to address. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I saw the second to last version of the movie, because I've seen a couple cuts. Oh, yeah. But I, I, there's a moment early, I think it's in the movie, or it might have been in conversations, where there's a conscious decision that, that there's, cert, there's a certain kind of conversationalist or combatant, if you will, that just can't be in the room. They'll wreck it. Mm. They're, they're like wreckers. Mm -hmm. Am I remember, remembering this correctly? I think it might have been, an, we might have talked about it in like a discussion. But yeah. I've heard this in terms of even how, how do you in, how do you sort of cultivate a good group conversation that there's a certain yeah. type of dug-in extreme worldview that they, they sort of causes everyone else to be silenced. You know, you're doing this as work, Ben. Like, can you talk about yeah. that? Because yeah. this points to something I want to raise, which is this notion of the paradox of tolerance. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. And how do you preserve a tolerant, pluralistic yeah. culture, mm -hmm. like, is is there a way to, like, identify, oh, like, oh, no, 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 they're, they're the, there's the terrorists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. the conversational terrorists yeah. that yeah. we have to sort of ignore somehow. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, this is, this feels like a big tension. Yeah. Uh, what's That's been your experience yeah. of this? Yeah, I mean, there, there are people, I think we asked the question, uh, can you have a conversation with um, someone who, looks at the world different from the way you do. We, we, yeah, we asked the question, like, do, do, are you able to have a conversation with someone who has, like, the opposite view of you? Right, right. Or why? And some people just cannot, right? Mm -hmm. It's a small percent of people who cannot. I don't know that we can really do anything about those, that group of people, and there has to be some kind of intervention. But... Were they all presidents of Ivy League universities <laughs> that answered the ASS question? Is that... Is that is that one of the filters? Is that a search criteria? No, not going there. <laughs> That's not really a joke. It's sort of a joke, except that it's not. I know. <laughs> um, but I think I see our role, people like us who are in the so-called bridging movement to help bridge divides, as the folks that have become the the, the exhausted majority who have gotten very quiet and are masking their views because they're, they've seen the extremes and they're worried, we want to give them a little bit of confidence, mm -hmm. right? So by practicing, by engaging, then you realize, oh my gosh, there, there's a lot more people like me. They don't have the same political beliefs, but they are, they are wonderful people and they're not these extremes that people say they are. Their voices have to be lifted mm -hmm. um, so that everyone can see that it's not... This is, this is what the majority is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, I think that's, you know, what we're going for. And um, at some point you have to not set the limit, but then you have to be aware of what you can do and what you cannot do. Mm -hmm. Is there practical advice on this that you can offer having had to figure this out in even a kind of experimental state? like? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, go to undivideusmovie.com where we have, we actually, no, we really legitimately have a bunch of resources that have been really curated by Ben and a lot of his folks at, at um, yeah. Um, so, because I don't, 
I don't think it's going to be any one answer that gets us out of this, you know, or any one mm -hmm. thing. But like, what you you have the three like principles mm -hmm. of discussion that you yeah. that you want. Yeah, let's talk about those that. earlier. Yeah, I, I think I, I mentioned that I respect authenticity and and curiosity, mm -hmm. um, and you know, respect being that um, we have to give each each other equal dignity. Um, we all have the right to be here, um, and it, it comes from that whole liberal thinking I mentioned earlier uh, about equality, and then authenticity, that we're not masking our views, and that we come to this conversation with our authentic selves. And then finally, curiosity, right? We're exploring ideas. Um, Adam Grant, who wrote a book, Think Again, um, <laughs> he, he actually got into a, a, a thing with, with Coleman Hughes. Um, well, he didn't get into a thing, but I think it's been made into a thing. But <laughs> let me just say that Think Again is a really good book, and he says that oftentimes when we are having a conversation about something that we care deeply about, mm -hmm. we become either politicians, prosecutors, or preachers. Mm -hmm. uh, the politician will say anything to, to get people on your side. Mm -hmm. um, the preacher is supposed to proselytize, right? They are unyielding in their faith, and the goal is to make sure that you also become, uh, you know, be part of the faith. And finally, the prosecutor. The prosecutor is a great debater. It's trying to exploit the weaknesses in your argument to make mm -hmm. yours look really, really good. And we can all see ourselves in this every once in a while. I often say that, look, when it comes to Gladiator, I'm all three things. I think it's the best movie of all time. <laughs> um, and we want to be a sort of scientific, right? That's the fourth thing. We want to explore, right? That's where the curiosity part comes in that when we are having these types of conversations uh, in our daily lives, we don't want to be, unless it's ice cream, right? Some of the trivial issues, it doesn't matter. But we don't want to be a politician, we don't want to be a preacher, we don't want to be a prosecutor. And on all of these important issues, we want to take the, the approach of curiosity. Mm. That's how we can engage one, find, find um, common threads. Um, as we kind of wrap up, and I want to make sure everyone knows where to find the movie, what to do next. But before we get to that, there's, a, a, I think, a somewhat implicit conclusion that I think you could draw from, from the movie. And I want to hear your, both of your thoughts on this. And that is, I, I, and in some ways I kind of know the answer, but I, we never really talked about it, about mm -hmm. the movie. That in a world where we can come to the table and, and be civil, but ultimately come away with very important disagreements about things that actually really matter, and that in some cases matter in terms of the rules of the game. Like, yeah. oh, we disagree about what the rules should be. Yeah. Um, that if we're going to be together in some sense, if we're gonna be able to live together, mm -hmm. it suggests a certain amount of like fences create good neighbors and that maybe you're gonna have your rules over there with the people that agree about that rule, whatever that might be, might be about abortion, especially mm -hmm. now in the aftermath of Roe, now we have mm -hmm. 50 different abortion rule sets to choose from. Mm -hmm. um, that's what actually happened, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but whatever, I mean, we, it, it suggests decentralization as one of the solutions, that the problem is trying to live 330 million people in this giant ocean to ocean super diverse, never before seen country and all have the same rules with a lot of detail about a lot of different stuff. Mm -hmm. Is that is that fair to say? Like that, that feels like a 
kind of undercurrent in the movie that we need to decentralize a lot to solve some of this so that we can live together. Like we can, at this level up here, we all agree we're Americans and there's a, a small group of things we agree on and that's kind of this level. And the more we get to the things that we really can't agree about, we do have to kind of separate a little and agree to disagree and agree to be like, oh, well, in our town, this is what we do. And if you don't like it, you don't have to live here. I don't, I'm not going to come and kill you, but you, but you probably don't want to live here because you're not going to like it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so my, my program at Mercatus is with the pluralism and civil exchange, right? Pluralism is the fact of difference, right? <laughs> Everything from whether you like anchovies pizza to I like you know pepperoni or, or what flavors of ice cream you like. Who too. likes anchovies? Or the the purpose of this nation and what what uh, faith you know wanted to be a part of and so on and so forth. You know, so many differences, um, but there's also how we engage with with that difference, um, and I think. Being able to connect and interact with people across differences is what pluralism is really about. Now, pluralism has two important features, as John and Oza would say. Inclusion, which is important, that as a society becomes more and more morally enlightened, we begin to include more people who have originally been marginalized from the society. And then second is dissent. It's important for us to allow people to dissent from orthodoxies, to introduce heterodox thinking, new approaches of, of living. That's why, you know, the Bill of Rights is, is incredibly important. Um, and I think that's something that we have to attach ourselves to uh, as being foundational in mm -hmm. all of this. Now, inclusion and dissent will oftentimes be in tension. That's what I was, I was hearing that as you say. Yeah. Well, the First Amendment, right? Right. The right to peaceably assemble. Mm -hmm. Also in, embedded in that is the right to say, you can't assemble with me. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. is my club. Mm -hmm. This is my church. Yeah. If you want to come in my church, you got to believe what we believe. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, that's fine. Yeah. Go start something else, but yeah. you can't be here. Yeah. And it, it, it begs your question, right? Decentralization becomes one really important solution to all of this stuff. That because when you have to look at your neighbor in the mm -hmm. eye, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt you, no, no, no. but no. like, like when you have to look at your neighbor in the eye, it's much harder to make these big rules about how you have to live your life. You know, that's why, yeah, yeah. yeah. and keep going. I'm sorry. I just get, I got excited. No, it's, it's great. No, it's, it's yeah, you're, you're right. And oftentimes, right. Some people would say, no, we all have to agree on X in order to move on. It must be universal. It must be universal. And the challenge is sometimes it's impossible. We have to learn to live with attention mm. over a sustained period of time. Um, and that is not a, the most satisfying res response to a lot of people. But I think it's, Ibluvus Unum is, is a bit of an evasive concept mm -hmm. because we cannot all have unity. We have to go for what John and Oz would say, a modest unity. Mm. Well, it's interesting. The e pluribus unum, when when our country was, of many one of yes. many one, when our country was being founded, there was actually that 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 was printed in in one of those like original pamphlets. But it was printed with this um, bouquet of flowers, 
and the flowers were all different. <laughs> and it was and it was like this idea that we're making a bouquet of many different flowers that are coming from many different places. Um, and we have some to wreck some, some with thorns, some, with thorns, yeah. Yeah. some smelly, you mm -hmm. know. But like, but the, the out of many ones that, that that we can recognize and love each of those flowers, but they have to be able to exist. And and I think that when you were talking about rules, you know, I, I'm always like, the, my, my rule of thumb is like less and more local. You know, right. I mean. Mm -hmm. um, well, it seems like the 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 bigger we get, the the higher up in the sort of structure. Mm -hmm the more important it is for us to have fewer rules yes. and for them to be simpler. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's been the opposite trajectory yes. of this, of, of our of our governance. Yes. It's like we've gotten, now it's like we, we have a world where it's like, well, of course we're all gonna be fighting. They didn't even read the bill. Right. It's 2,000 pages, they couldn't read it. Right. And so there's all kinds of, it's like surface area for anger right. is one way to look at that. We have that's like 75,000 yeah. pages of federal reg, yeah. federal rules and regs that are all, opportunities to be pissed off at each other yeah and that yes it's absolutely a very libertarian way to look at things but um it happens to be right <laughs> sorry like do you want to fight and kill each other or do you want to yeah. say like no no no, we'll live we'll we can live together but also choose the way to live mm -hmm. and yeah. then we get to learn from each other but not be forced to adopt one or the other right yeah. We, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good because it's like you say I want fewer rules and they're like oh well then you know there won't be a rule about some esoteric thing and like okay yeah do you people really think, will slip through the cracks then well and do you really but do you really think like people are going to look at their neighbors and vote for that like if you have to actually go and answer to your neighbor down the street I really think people behave differently when when those are when we lay out those kinds of stakes, and mm -hmm. so I th I think we all just have to have some bites of. Um, I had an executive producer once who said, "Like I'm going to give you a bite of reality sandwich. Like can we just like eat a lot of reality sandwiches? Mm -hmm. Like look at our fellow human beings a little bit more, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. make fewer big national laws." As you've done. As you've done this movie and you talk with these people, uh, were there any personal lessons? Was there anything that you came away from the process having, maybe not changed your mind on, but having been like rounded out or shifted or, what did you learn from all this? I mean, I think this idea of having to really, because we didn't even go into this, the focus groups knowing what kind of um, conversation process we were gonna use and then we used this triadic mm -hmm. illumination which was incredibly effective. I, I think that that more of that, when you're having a disagreement with someone to say, hey, let me just see if I'm getting your perspective right. I, I see that we really disagree here. Uh, can I tell you what I think I hear you saying about what you think? And like, I just think taking the moment to do that, actually, I, I mean, I've done it with my children now. <laughs> like, and it just like, and I think it came out of a marriage counseling like yeah. thing. And I just think it's really, helpful in terms of having that other person not leave the conversation hating your guts. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like even if you're gonna disagree about it. This reminds me, um, before we got started, I was talking to uh, Tim in the other room and, and um, marriage counselor, I forget the name of the guy that Arthur Brooks t loves to reference, that you can tell if a marriage is gonna dissolve. Oh yeah, by if, the four horsemen, uh, um, 
what's the word? It's a... I forget if it's Gottman, but it, it, babe, one of the core things was contempt. Contempt, mm -hmm. yes. So if if you're sitting, if you if the, if these two, if this married couple is in, is in um, and he'd just seen this by, with so many instances that it yeah. became clear that like, oh, this is a thing. You know, that was a Stossel piece on 2020. <laughs> <laughs> there isn't an issue that hasn't had a Stossel always piece. Been, always been like But it, the basic premise was, Beware of the eye roll. Yeah. Beware of the instant, the, this like, I'm not sure, sure what the perfect definition of contempt is, but it's some mix of dismissal and disgust. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, oh, here she goes again, here he goes again. Right. Ugh. Yep. And that that is, I think, at the marital level, call it like four alarm fire time. Yeah. And it feels like that's the national level. Four alarm yeah. fire time, like yeah. the, the extent to which you just oh, hear that's things, interesting. Yeah. and it's like, uh, no, I know where you're going. Yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. oh. Yep. Yeah. Um, I think that's the equal yeah, dignity that's, thing. Yeah. That's that's yeah. the first thing about the respect thing, where we are thinking about that we're one another's dignified equals. Yeah. And and when you think that way, you're not. You know, that's why we ask the question: Can you have a conversation with someone who looks who has a totally opposite view? If you can't, you're probably in the in the contempt camp, right? Mm. Look at the other people with, with contempt who don't agree with you. And that's that's uh, that's hard, right? So. All right, where? Less contempt, more love. More love and, like cur that. and curiosity. Yeah. I'll settle for respect. Yeah. Okay, yeah, respect. Love is I'll great. take respect. Love is great. Respect love is great. Is good. <laughs> um, all right, you've made this movie. Mm -hmm. um, getting movies out there into the world is hard. Mm -hmm. uh, for the viewer, um, what, what, what can they do? Look, they're so excited. They can host a screening. Go to our website, um, undivideusmovie.com. You can put your info in there. Someone will follow up with you, and you can host a screening. Um, later on next year, but before the election, this movie will be available screening, and um, maybe we'll convince you to let your viewers know when that happens. <laughs> if you're on a college campus and you want to work with us with the Pluralist Lab, um, reach out. Yeah. Get Ben, get Ben yeah. to come. Yeah, yeah, happy to, happy to come and, and talk. Yeah. We'll put links to both the, your website and to the Pluralist Lab in um, the description. And I'll end the way I end most of these conversations, which is to each of you, how do you see your role? This is called Dad Saves America, because yeah. this is the best I got to try to do, <laughs> to try to do that. That's yeah. what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Um, how do you see your role in the American story? Christy, I'll start with you. Yeah. Well, I mean, my North Star is that every project I work on has to be, in my view, using my gifts and talents to improve the world for my children and all of our children to grow up into. That is, that is like my driving why behind everything I do. I see my role in the American story as trying to do that to the best of my ability. My mom always says, um, to those to whom much has been given, much will be required, and I, I take that as I, I live and I breathe and I exist in this incredible country. And so I need to do as much as I can for my children and all of our children. Is that too cheesy? <laughs> <laughs> but I really do feel that way. <laughs> that's too cheesy. My American dream, my American role is uh, to be a, a cheesy, positive filmmaker trying to make the world a better place. I don't. I feel like that was super Pollyannish. <laughs> but that's really how that's I great. feel. <laughs> it's not my role to judge. <laughs> ben, how about you? What's your role in this American story? You're 
You chose it. Yeah. Or it was chosen. No, I think the American story is about pluralism, right? How do we live together and coexist amidst deep divides and differences? And the way that I'm doing it is through the program on pluralism and civil exchange and basically encouraging people that we can all do this. We, with a little bit of practice, we'll get better at it and we'll begin to see each other a little bit differently. I think that's what it takes. Mm-hmm. Thank you both for being on Dad Thanks Saves America. For us. Thank you so much. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Dad Saves America podcast. If you did, make sure to subscribe so you won't miss the next episode. It also really helps us out when you leave us a good rating wherever you listen to podcasts. For more content like this, including video versions of these conversations, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com/dadsavesamerica.